now to anyone out there who wants to go fast. Anybody. I want to go fast. He's a freak. He's a fast killer. He's a fast killer. I feel the need. The need for speed. He's really, really fast. I mean, he's so fast. He makes fast people look not fast. I got it. He's fast. Welcome to another episode of the Speed Podcast. I'm Steve Breitenstein, your director of coaching. Um, really exciting episode. It's somebody that I've been following for a while on social media. Uh, definitely not afraid to go out there and kind of challenge the norms of strength and conditioning. A lot of single leg work and kind of challenging how heavy can you actually go on single leg performance wise. When we first transitioned to kind of this, this talking about do we actually need to do bilateral squatting and deadlifting and then saying, well, we'll never be able to go as heavy. This coach has really pushed the limit on that, which is pretty exciting. So Devin McConnell is here. Uh, he is the head sports performance coach at UMass Lowell, uh, the River Hawks. He is also an author. He wrote the book Intent, which you can get on Amazon. Um, but we're really fortunate that Devin was able to find some time uh, in the busy in-season schedule of, of collegiate hockey to be able to talk to us a little bit. So, Coach, thank you so much for being here. Can you give everybody just a little bit of a background of how you kind of got to where you're at today? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, yeah, so my path uh, into the field of, of strength and conditioning, sports performance, sports science, um, I guess I, I've probably roughly 15 years ago when I kind of got started. Um, the the semi-brief uh, story is that I, I went to college uh, to play hockey. I was a goaltender and um, I really chose where I, where I went based on the, the best opportunity to play right away. Um, it had very little to do with the, uh, the academic side of things, um, but I was really fortunate that I ended up at a school that had exercise science. And I was somewhat interested in, I thought I was somewhat interested in physical therapy going in. So it, it kind of worked out that way um, to end up at this, at this school that had exercise science. So I started kind of going down the track of, of preparing for, uh, you know, to get into physical therapy school and, and doing all that. Um, but what I realized as I kind of went and as I started to do some volunteer work and internships and things like that, uh, is that I wasn't I wasn't really interested in physical therapy. I was interested in strength and conditioning. I just didn't really know at the time that that was a viable option, that that was even really a career. Um, I, you know, was, I was at a small school and although I had had a, a strength and conditioning teacher coach in uh, high school, I kind of didn't, I don't know, I didn't connect the dots very well. So, uh, it was sort of through college and through the internship and volunteer sort of experience that I realized that uh, S&C was the direction that I wanted to go. Um, and my career kind of started, uh, started from there at, uh, my first stop, I guess, was at Mike Boyle strength and conditioning in the Boston area. So most people in the field are, are probably at least familiar with Mike's name. Uh, I interned there. That was kind of the big aha moment for me. And then I, I came back and worked, uh, the following year. Uh, from there, I was fortunate enough to get a job, uh, at Stanford university. So I moved from, uh, from Boston, from the Boston area out west to uh, California. And I actually grew up on the west coast. So it was kind of returning back, uh, at least that part of the country for me. Spent about three years at Stanford working, uh, with uh, women's basketball and men's, men's and women's volleyball. Um, at the same time, I, uh, I was fortunate enough to spend a little bit of time with the, uh, the Anaheim Ducks in the National Hockey League. Uh, as in sort of an intern, uh, coach at their development camp. And then while I was at Stanford, Stanford's about a half an hour away from San Jose. So I got to know and spend a lot of time, uh, with the San Jose Sharks with their strength coach, Mike Potenza. Uh, he was really kind to let me kind of hang out and, and learn from him and work with those guys. So I spent time there. And then, uh, three years later, uh, an opportunity to get back into, uh, collegiate hockey opened up at, uh, University of Massachusetts Lowell, which is where I'm at now. So I made the trek back out east, and I've been here for uh, about eight years. It's awesome. I, I love I love hearing those journeys, uh, and I think you just kind of go all around the map is when you're really trying to become that 
collegiate strength coach or that professional strength coach. There's so many stops along the way and so many influences along the way. Who were a couple other coaches that uh, kind of made a big influence on you? I know you mentioned Mike Boyle. Uh, who else along the way made a big influence? Yeah, I mean, Mike is uh, was and, and continues to be, you know, uh, uh, my mentor. Um, been very fortunate there. Uh, the guy that I worked at, uh, worked for at Stanford, Brandon Marcello, um, learned a, a tremendous amount from him. He, he was one of the, the founders of, uh, the, you know, the first coaches at athletes performance that then became, you know, which is now Exos. Um, so learned a, a ton from him. Um, a guy in the field right now that, that, uh, I've gotten to know and, and, and learning a lot from is, is Fergus Connolly. Um, he's been a, a bunch of places, you know, from, uh, Ireland to the 49ers to, uh, with the all blacks in New Zealand, all over the place. Um, so those are, those are three guys that have been really influential for me. Uh, I love it. And with where your current position is, uh, are you able to just work with hockey or are you working with any other teams right now? I, I work primarily with hockey. It's kind of my, my 24 seven. Uh, and then mm -hmm. I also work with our women's soccer program. Um, okay. and it, the way that, uh, our department and our sort of, athletic department as a whole is is built as hockey is physically separate from uh the rest of the campus we have our own arena in a literally a different part of the city um so that's where i'm housed that's where i'm at 24 7 um kind of full full go full travel kind of uh primary sport job and then like i said i, I also uh, work with our women's soccer program awesome i love it and talking about just kind of your philosophy and you've been pushing kind of the boundaries of what's kind of possible with unilateral training how would you describe kind of your training philosophy yeah uh, so the way i kind of describe it is i, I follow what i consider a movement-based approach meaning that everything that we're going to do in the weight room uh, ultimately needs to lead towards better movement in the sport you know specifically in, in hockey um, if it's not if what we're doing is not ultimately improving an athlete's ability to move on the ice or on the field then we really need to to think about why we're doing it. Um, and within that, there's really two priorities for me. So the, the first priority, first and foremost, is everything that we're doing is to try to reduce the incidence of injury. Uh, we believe, I believe very strongly that as a program, um, if our players are really strong in the weight room, but every time they get on the ice, they pull a hip flexor or groin, then they're not going to be able to develop and we're not going to be very good. On the flip side, uh, if if our players can practice every day and compete, in every game, then we're going to have a really good chance for success. So everything that we do is, you know, first and foremost, through a lens of trying to reduce the, the incidence of injury. Uh, and then it's to improve performance. And that's where a lot of our kind of sports science um, assessment and monitoring stuff comes in to, to try to identify uh, what exactly improved performance for an individual means. Um, there's some some fundamentals and some big rocks that uh, are, are there for everybody. And then there's some things that we try to tweak as, as an athlete goes through their career here that, uh, to try to continue to push the envelope and, and help them improve. Yeah, that's great. And with kind of, that's a, it's a pretty sound foundation. I think a lot of coaches would say that they have, do you feel like some coaches will say that that's their foundation of their program, but what you actually see in the weight room is a little bit of a, a dissonance, kind of like a difference of what they're saying versus what's actually happening. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I don't, I don't think anybody is, is going to say that they're, uh, they're not trying to reduce the chance right. of injury. Um, right. I would hope not at least. Uh, but I think, yeah, to, to my eye, you know, a lot of times I see things that, that don't necessarily, uh, uh fit that model, uh, to mm -hmm. me that, you know, exercise selection or choices or, or, uh, perf you know, technique and performance that, um, you know, maybe is, it, again, to me is, is a little bit of lip service to that that fundamental goal yeah and when you were at uh mbsc i'm sure that this is kind of where it got really got the wheels cranking about what training could look like can you talk about just like your mindset when you were going in there what training should look like versus when you came out was that where the big change happened or did it slowly happened where you kind of changed where this focus was at yeah i mean i think um in a lot of ways i was really fortunate to have one of my, you know, sort of early fundamental experiences in strength and conditioning, uh, being at MBSC, um, was also really fortunate. Again, hindsight, like looking back at how I was trained in high school, just in, you know, the advanced strength and conditioning class and PE, um, was actually 
pretty damn good training and, and really sort of uh, ahead of the curve, I think, from that standpoint. But but certainly uh, my my first kind of real experience in SNC um, working for Coach Boyle and being in that environment where you know those those philosophies and those sort of big rocks. That's that's where that developed for me. That that's what the purpose of of performance training for athletics is really all about. So so seeing that firsthand, I think. Um, really shaped my viewpoints and and my thought process around training, um, and it's certainly evolved uh, since then, and it's constantly changing. And I'm I'm constantly tinkering with things and doing things a little bit different here and there. But uh, I think fundamentally, those those basic uh, tenets have kind of evolved from there. Yeah, and what do you feel like currently? Um, I think that people love to have the X's and O's, the playbook of what's going on in the weight room. What are those movements that you find are kind of foundations uh, for your programs? And how many years have you been able to kind of like really find which which exercises are, have really become that foundation? Yeah, I think um, I think before I, I think about exercises, I, I think about movement categories, right? So mm-hmm. just in in general, uh, the kind of the the categories that I'm going to try to train are some type of total body explosive exercise, lower body pushing, upper body pulling, uh, lower body pulling, upper body pushing, and then core work is going to consist primarily of, of uh, anti-extension and, and anti-rotation type exercises. Mm-hmm. So once I have that sort of template in place or that thought process, then it's a matter of plugging in uh, specific exercises. And, and sometimes those will differ uh, depending on, again, some of that individual um individualization with athletes, although an exercise may be still in the same category. Um, but those are the main things. And then from a, I guess, an X's and O's, a kind of big rock component of what specific exercises make up those categories for me. Um, I've always been a proponent from an explosive exercise standpoint of, of hang cleans and hang snatches. I'm doing a lot more with um, like loaded jumps, trap bar jumps, things like that um, recently. Um Lower body pushing, uh, you know, is typically your sort of knee dominant squat pattern type stuff. For us, that's going to be a rear foot elevated split squat almost primarily at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same vein, lower body pulling for, for us is usually going to be, um, a single leg deadlift, some variation similar to that. Um, and then, you know, we bench press, we do chin ups and pull ups. Um, we, we, you know, do the, the basic stuff from that standpoint as well. Yeah. Um, but we try to, uh, we try to make sure that we're fitting the, the exercise to the individual and, and not just trying to squeeze the individual into the exercise. I love it. I think that's such a crucial part where we have a tendency sometimes to fall in love with things that we liked or things that we enjoy doing now and not truly being flexible enough to see like just my athlete maybe just doesn't fit into this, this hole. I need to find something that they can do well. Yeah. And I, I think the, um, you know, the, the Olympic lifting kind of conversation that always happens and and Olympic lifting or, or not. And then this idea of loaded jumps and things like trap bar jumps is sort of coming into the the fray. And, and, um, it's one of those, those arguments that, you know, Olympic lifting done really well can be really beneficial, but sometimes it's hard to get non-Olympic lifting athletes to be proficient enough that you look at it and you say, well, maybe, maybe that's a square peg in a round hole and it's just not fitting. And that's where, some of these loaded jump variations that we've been playing with the last couple of years have really started to come in. And then having the ability to uh, monitor output and look at things like power output and, and force plate uh, characteristics um, using these exercises and com- then comparing those to things like Olympic lifting and saying, well, you know what, not only is maybe this a, a better, easier alternative for certain athletes, but it might actually have a, a higher carryover and output as well. So um, yeah, it's always important to, to look at those things and, and it's always important you know, not to have sacred cows and be able to to evaluate what you're doing without bias um, as much as possible. I love that. I think the Olympic lifts is always a, a hard kind of debate when people start talking about it. And then kind of your squatting and uh, deadlift variations, if you have to do bilateral loading in order to elicit that, that strength and hypertrophy results that you're looking for. I know on the strengthcoach.com website, there was a great thread that was talking about loaded jumps and what that looks like as far as the weight that they're using. Um, with some of the research you guys have been doing and kind of following it with the force plates, 
Have you found kind of that range for the loaded jumps that is correlating to come at some of those snatches and cleans? Yeah, uh, different guys are, are, are kind of wired a little bit differently and, and are going to kind of uh, fall into some different loads. But but generally speaking, I think the the loads with the um, the trap bar jumps for us, what I've seen from a like a peak power output standpoint, are actually relatively low. Um, for, we, we've got guys that are just jumping with with an empty bar um, who are pretty strong guys and maybe the heaviest that um, some of our guys are going is maybe 105, 115. Um, but probably a lot of guys are centered just right around that 85, 95 pound mark. So what we're seeing is, is um, much lower loads than, than I would have thought a few years ago or eliciting the greatest um, performance improvements. And, and actually I saw the same, I, I saw and continue to see the same thing with, Olympic lifts, um, at least the way that we perform them and, and what I want to see is much more on the velocity side of the equation. So lighter and faster um, tends to be much more effective for us in developing power that's transferable to hockey than, uh, than heavier and, and, and slower. So we've kind of moved more on the, the, the speed side of the equation on, with our power work um, yeah. from that standpoint, and, and it's been good for us. Oh, I love that. Um, with your jumps, you guys, are you using a force plate or do you have a jump mat? What's your way of kind of calculating? Yeah, we do it a couple different ways. Um, we, uh, we have, uh, some jump mats that we use that we can just get basic jump height, uh, from, uh, and we can kind of, um, track and monitor stuff that way. We have some velocity based training tools, gym awares and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so some of our guys or at certain times we'll use those, uh, to get actual, um, you know, power and wattage data yeah. off of that. Um, and then we have a force plate that's a newer piece of equipment for us. So we haven't done a tremendous amount of loaded jump work that way. Um, but we've started using that, uh, to start to build, um, to build a, uh, kind of a, a jump profile with loaded jumps mm -hmm. that is helping us kind of figure out and tease out some of those, those intricacies. Yeah. And I know that in the discussion that was on strength coach, Kind of like a, a thing that Mike was talking about was that they had found that they're semi-estimating that you can load up so that you are still at a 70% of your max vertical jump height on the jump mat. Uh, as far as a kind of way to kind of adjust your weight as need be, um, with like a kind of a daily, just quickly do the jump mat, see what your max vertical is, add weight to the bar until you're still able to get 70%, but still jumping with good velocity. Does that number kind of correlate with some of the stuff you've been finding? Yep. Yeah, actually it has. And, and that's where um, some of the stuff that, that Coach Boyle uh, has put up and that he's experimented with um, had me sort of experimenting myself and cross-referencing. And, and that kind of 70-ish percent um, of jump height uh, tended to be pretty close to the weight that elicited the highest uh, power outputs mm -hmm. when we looked at it from a, a velocity standpoint, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't exact, but it was in the ballpark for sure. Yeah. I think that that's, that's something that's so helpful for a lot of coaches that don't have access to really track the, the velocity of the barbell, uh, that they can just have that quick jump mat. If they have one of those nearby or whatever tool they use to measure vertical, it does create a little bit of that accountability side to really move towards the velocity side of the, the profile. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, one of the other pieces, whether it's a simple jump mat to use that, or, or if you do have access to, you know, velocity tools, um, from a, a motivation, from an in, intrinsic motivation standpoint for athletes, I've just seen a huge difference in output. Um, when, when there's a, a number attached to that, there's just the, the competitive nature. Same thing when we do our sprint work, yeah. uh, we time all of our, our short sprint work and, and that's been, a big game changer for us as well. And it's really just, it has to do with that immediate feedback and that competitiveness that I think um, without the ability to, to measure something is a, a lot harder to get um, individuals to kind of fully buy in or, or uh, fully, you know, put out the output that they're capable of sometimes. Yeah. It is amazing. Like, and you can create what we found kind of in the private setting is even just making up any sort of agility type thing and timing it you just get much higher effort on the sprint work and the change of direction work, and even more so than when you have just a straight competition uh, to really just try to beat their own time. The, the possibilities are endless as far as what you can create and measure. 
Yeah, totally agree. Absolutely. And with you guys track and sprints, what kind of distances do you guys work on? Let's say this is preseason, because I'm sure it kind of changes as far as what you're doing a lot, as far as in-season, preseason, and then postseason. Uh, so let's say like in-season, what kind of stuff are you tracking as far as sprints go? Yeah, and actually a lot of our stuff stays pretty much the same. Our, our sprint work is, um, from a volume standpoint, it's a little bit lower in-season, but the distances are the same. So we look at, at uh, two different short sprints. We do a, um, a three-point stance, 10-yard uh, acceleration uh, test, and then we do the, the three-point stance um, flying 10 over 20 yards. So we don't have a ton of space, mm -hmm. uh, so really we can't go much further than than a full sprint at 20 yards. Um, but we get uh, we get that initial 10-yard uh, uh, acceleration on one day, and then on the other day uh, we get that flying 10, so a little bit closer to, to max velocity. Yeah. Now I know with some of the hockey athletes that we're working with, uh, a, a general concern is getting them in the top speed, like a true top speed when you're – maybe going over 40 yards of a, of a build-up run. Um, when they're in season, the hips get really tight. And so you're kind of, kind of risking a little bit when you start getting to that little bit higher speed velocity. If you guys had more space, would you try to get them up to a higher speed? That's a great question. Um, it's something that I would, I would lean more towards now, now that we've been doing this for a couple of years and had – you know, literally no issue, zero issue. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have thought that like, uh, you know, I wouldn't have thought that a few years ago before doing that. Um, we've always done short 10 yard sprints, um, uh, even in season, but, you know, expanding that out now to the, the fly, the fly 10, um, was a little bit of, a um, uncomfortable for me to kind of go there. Yeah. Uh, but we've gone there and it's, we've had, again, we've had, not a single issue yeah. uh, and we do it really consistently. But I also think that the consistency is a piece of it. I think it's, mm -hmm. if you didn't do it often, you just tested it once a, once a month or something like that. I think it might be very different. I think it's, it's, um, I think it's something that needs to be included, especially for, you know, hockey players and the way that they, they run is not very pretty. So having that be consistent is really important. Yeah. It, it is something that we, we've played around with for a long time as far as just having a little bit longer of a buildup into it. Uh, but then with some sports, like you're saying, we would kind of shorten it down a little bit. And after being a little bit more involved with the track world and just kind of talk about having that speed reserve where when you get athletes to actually run at faster pace than they ever have, they now have that little bit of reserve between what is their actual fastest and what the game is calling for. And when you really start yeah. thinking about it that way, it's like, oh man, like, yeah, I definitely want to get them to feel what that's like. So they're not having to be running at 100% now in the game. Now 85 is still faster than they were running and they're under control now. Right. No, I, I totally agree. And that's, that's if we had the space and we just don't, but the, I would, I would have that, yeah. um, that thought exactly about expanding out even just a little bit further if, if possible. Um, but that's the compromise you, you make with what you got. Yeah, for sure. And what else are you kind of tracking? Do you track anything that's on the ice in regard to kind of acceleration on the dry land? Is there anything that you've seen kind of correlate well on that? We've we've tested uh, on ice sprints a couple of times, um, and it's been a pretty close correlation not not one to one mm -hmm. um, from off ice and, and on ice. Um, but we haven't done it consistently enough to you know for me to to um, have any conclusive kind of data, but Certainly, uh, you know, our, our, you know, to our eye, to the eye, our, our fastest guys on the ice tend to be some of the faster guys off of the ice. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's safe to say that there's a, there's a connection to that. But unfortunately, we haven't done a ton of testing, um, on the ice, just again, from a logistics and a time standpoint. Yeah. It does get a bit time consuming. How are you guys measuring as far as like a stopwatch? Do you have the lasers out? Uh, what's your method? Yeah, we use a laser, a Brower uh, laser timing system. So we have two sets of gates so that it's on the uh, the short, the 10-yard sprint, it's a uh, laser start, laser finish. And, and on the fly 10, it's it's obviously a laser start and finish uh, over that segment. And what other kind of uh, like KPIs are you guys looking at as far as just the athletic development side? I know that we get caught in this realm 
as strength coaches to prove that as we are doing our job well, our athletes are getting stronger. Um, but like you're talking about, the movement is more important and it's kind of what, what are we doing and how is it equaling them playing well? But we got to have kind of KPIs on that. They're letting us know that we're doing that well. What do you guys use uh, to kind of indicate if the training is going well? Yeah, I mean, well, the, the, the biggest one really is, is man games lost, right? It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's availability. So if we're staying healthy and guys are able to, to play every weekend, we're not getting soft tissue injuries, um, then that's really the biggest KPI. Uh, but from a performance standpoint, the, the stuff that we look at the most often and, and is sort of most indicative of what we're, what we're trying to improve are um, our, our vertical jump and our, our, uh, our jump profiling uh, mm -hmm. assessments. So we do, um, we do three types of jumps, um, basically every training session. We do a, a drop jump where we look at elasticity. So we get something called uh, the reactive strength index, which is basically height divided by contact time. So how springy are they? We do a uh, non-counter movement jump. So like a squat jump from a static hold. So we look more at the concentric force output. And then we do a, a regular um, counter movement vertical jump. And that's sort of our global power indicator. We do all of those on our jump mats. And then we also do um, uh, the, the counter movement and the non-counter movement on our force plate. Um, and again, that's, that's pretty new. So we're still trying to figure out what that data is kind of telling us um, and where we're going to go with that. But we do those multiple times a week, basically in our training sessions. And, and we want to make sure that over time that all those indicators of explosiveness are improving as long along with our, our speed numbers mm -hmm. uh, and then ultimately our, our man gains lost. I love it. And what, what kind of numbers were you seeing kind of when you first started out and took over the program um, to now as far as the like availability? Um, has there been anything that you feel has made the biggest difference for that improving? Yeah, so um, when I took over here, the, uh, the team previously did not have a full-time strength coach. Mm -hmm. they, um, they just outsourced to like a local, uh, a local you know, performance center. Um, and the, the previous few years before um, I came here and the rest of our staff, we all came here at the same time, um, the injury rates were really high. Uh, some of the highest in our conference, in our league. Um, and since that time, we've been really fortunate to uh, uh, to have really, really low man games loss. We haven't had a we haven't had a game missed due to a soft tissue injury like a, a you know hip flexor or growing pull in like four or five years, um, and we're consistently uh, amongst the lowest in in the conference, if not the country, that way. I think there's no one thing that that adds up to that, right? I think I think getting strong and being strong is a really big piece of that. I think the daily uh, warm up and mobility and soft tissue and foam rolling work that we do is a big part of that. I think managing workloads um, via our heart rate system um, and and adjusting practice workloads based on the data that we have is a really big piece of that. I think having a really good athletic therapist, athletic trainer. Uh, help you know fill in the gaps and, and fix guys and keep little things little is a really big piece of that so there's no one one thing but I think it's it's like a puzzle there's all these pieces that need to go together and they need to fit together and ultimately they need to be done really consistently that again is probably the biggest thing is I'm able to be with our guys train our guys warm our guys up every single day uh, and make sure all those little things happen uh, that, that really add up to uh, reducing the chance of injury. No, I love that. Consistency is so key with that. And I think a lot of a lot of what we're kind of finding out from many coaches and many programs is it's not the intensity that ever really takes athletes out. It always kind of comes back to volume. And you're kind of talking about varying the workloads for athletes based on kind of heart rate tracking. Just I'm sure you're doing some sort of tracking of minutes played. Um, but like that seems to be a big thing that we miss, especially in the high school level is the volume just keeps adding on top of the volume on top of the volume with some of these athletes. There's no question. Volume is volume is almost always the problem. Yeah. Um, it, you know, very, very rarely is, is uh, a low volume, high intensity approach problematic. Um, it's, it's almost always the opposite. And, and from a performance standpoint as well, um, it, you know, high volume practicing training is is not as effective from a performance 
output standpoint uh, as the opposite. Um, and so we really structure, you know, not, not just in the weight room, but really collectively, we structure what we do in practice um, around, uh, you know, an approach where we try to vary workloads and vary intensities and volumes on a day-to-day basis. Um, just like a good strength and conditioning program, you're not just mm-hmm. going to do the exact same sets and reps uh, for, you know, eight straight weeks. We're going to, vol- you know, uh, undulate what we're going to do over the course of a week and over the course of a month. And we're also going to monitor the, uh, you know, where our athletes are at and how they're feeling, how they're reacting to that stress. Because one of the things I think that gets lost in translation a lot of time with sport coaches uh, and strength coaches is that, especially in season, the, the biggest stressor to the athlete uh, is practice. It's practice and competition. It's what they're doing, you know, at our level, six, six days a week, uh, we're on the ice. It's not the two hours a week that we're in the weight room that has the biggest impact on readiness and injury potential and performance. It's really what's going on on the ice. And so we want to make sure that we're paying attention to that and we're, we're prescribing what we're doing on the ice from a, a volume intensity standpoint in a way that, that makes sense. Yeah. And with kind of those stressors, how do you guys kind of work with these athletes as far as their nutrition, their sleep? Do you, as a smaller school, are you able to have kind of the resources that some of the bigger schools have as far as like a nutritionist, um, somebody come in and kind of guide them on that process? Or is that coming on to you as a strength coach? Yeah, it's, it's mostly me. Um, we do now recently uh, have a, a part-time nutritionist on staff for all of our teams. So she's been really helpful uh, for some one-on-one work with guys. But from a nutri- nutrition standpoint, from a sleep standpoint, you know, my role is, is, my role is essentially to oversee everything that we can do off of the ice to help our players be better on the ice. So those things fall under me. So, you know, um, we're not a, a, a really big school, but we're fortunate enough uh, to be able to, you know, uh, handle a lot of the nutritional needs for our athletes, you know, pre and post game meals, um, things like having a smoothie bar, uh, built into our facility when we renovated, um, having, you know, snacks available for guys that are nutritious and beneficial. And then it's a lot of education. It's a lot of talking with guys all the time about, um, what is, what is good nutrition? What is proper nutrition? What do guys need? How do they navigate, you know, how do they navigate the, the, uh, uh, you know, the cafeteria on campus and things when maybe the, the options aren't ideal. Uh, and what are the, the implications, right? That's the biggest thing is everybody, everybody knows you should eat well and everybody basically knows what eating well is, but people don't realize the impact that uh, nutrition and, and hydration and sleep has on performance. Uh, so, so it's continuously educating our athletes on, on not only how to do these things, but why they're important and why they're important for them. Yeah. Some of the stuff that, comes out about the importance of sleep is pretty powerful when you you almost feel like man maybe you guys should just not even train you just need to go home and sleep tonight and get a full nine to ten hours especially when they're traveling um and practicing late uh, it becomes like that is such a key component of it and so many of our athletes just kind of disregard it and you almost have that mindset of if i can fight through being tired that makes me tougher um, have you guys experienced that at all in your program Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the, that's the common thought process. Um, and it, it's, it's wrong. It's, right. it, sleep is not, sleep is not an inert thing that just happens that you're just unconscious. Sleep is when all of the recovery and, and rejuvenation from everything you do cognitively, physically, you know, every stressor that you encounter, um, sleep is when you, you recover from those things and you adapt from those things. Um, it, it's, it's probably the most important part of the training puzzle and it gets talked about obviously, you know, the least, uh, but I was really fortunate when I was at Stanford, um, to work with, uh, a couple of people that there's a, a sleep research center at Stanford. It was the very first of its kind. Um, the, in fact, the, the person that uh, coined the term REM sleep, uh, is the director, Dr. William Dement. He's like the father of sleep research. And I got to work with them um, and some of our, our teams when I was at Stanford. And there's, there's some research that really started to turn the tide in athletics around sleep um, that came from them. And I was actually involved in some of that. And it basically looked at, they tracked uh, basketball players and they, they, um, they, we tracked all kinds of stuff, shooting percentage and sprint speed and reaction time and all these things. And they essentially had the athletes 
work off their sleep debt. So some of these athletes were, were prescribed to sleep 12 hours a night. And what they found was that um, all of these performance metrics uh, increased exponentially when athletes uh, got the sleep that they really needed. Uh, and, and that was some of the, the early research that really started to turn the tide. And, and so I've been able to use that and some of those stories and talk about some of those things to educate. But you're, you're absolutely right that you cannot – uh, you can't out recover poor sleep. It's it's absolutely a cornerstone. Yeah. And when your guys, how long is your season start to finish? So college hockey is the longest collegiate sporting season yeah. in the NCA. Um, we uh, our first game will is basically the start of October. Mm-hmm. So the the month of September is preseason. Um, most teams will have their first game, whatever the first weekend of October is, and then. Uh, if you're fortunate enough to make it to the Frozen Four, that's in in mid mid April. So it's almost the entire school year. Yeah. Uh, and and um and the way things operate now at this level is it's more or less year round from a training standpoint. So our athletes come back on campus and spend a, a large portion of the summer here training together and, and working together. Um, so really, it's the the in season is the longest season in college sports, and then it's really a year round kind of schedule. Yeah. Working in our setting, we work with a lot of high school uh, hockey players, and it's similar. Like theirs almost goes from kind of September through the end of March or so. Is that it becomes that you feel like you're always in season training. There's very little actual off season training. I think it kind of pushes that uh, curiosity of like, what can we do to continue to get stronger? Because if you're in that traditional kind of maintenance strength, uh, I'm not really trying to push it too hard then your athletes really never are getting stronger. So you've, you, you had to probably be a little creative as far as how can I load these athletes in season to elicit responses without taking away from them being healthy and competing at a high level. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, you know, the length of the season um, does make it really tough, you know, from a developmental standpoint. And that's why you, you're, you hit the nail on the head. You got to be creative. The in season can't be about maintenance. If you're trying to maintain what you did, uh, in the summer, seven months later, you're not, you can't do that. You're going to be weaker. You're going to be slower. You're going to be out of shape. Um, so you have to, you have to continue to develop these, these qualities in season, albeit at a, a slower rate. Um, just because obviously we're not training, uh, as often as the off season and the priority then certainly becomes readiness for games. Um, but to me, really the key is, is to maintain uh, and continue to to sort of increase and and um, push intensity while really minimizing volume. So we're going to take a a super low volume approach. You know, at this point in the season, we might have one one working set really of our our main exercises. Um, you know, maybe a, a warm up set and a working set. That working set is going to be performed really intensely. At, at, you know, if we're talking about percentage of one RM, we're we're somewhere between eighty and ninety percent. Um, but it's going to be really low volume, low reps, low sets. Uh, so it, it, we want to continuously have a, a strength stimulus, but not a volume stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been our approach. And over time, it's been really successful. Our guys, um, especially our, our younger players will continue to, to get stronger even in season when you kind of, you know, look at that and think that there's not really an opportunity there, but by maintaining high loads and, and high intensities, we're able to do that. If there's a week where some of your younger guys maybe aren't playing a lot of minutes, are you able to kind of fluctuate their volume a little bit and say, hey, although you've been lifting hard all the time, this is kind of a down week for you. We're going to get a little bit more in this week. Do you use that as like an extra week to maybe get even better recovery? How do you kind of view that where they don't have as much going on? Yeah, I think that's really the the art of the art and science mm-hmm. um, is kind of knowing out of your group of 30 guys, you know, who do you, who do you tell to, to take a set off? Who do you tell to, to add a set? Um, one of the ways that gets worked out a lot for us is that if you don't, if you don't play on game day, you, you work out, you train. So if a guy is consistently not in the lineup, he's, he's automatically getting, you know, an extra one or two uh, training sessions a week. So we may not really alter the sort of team training sessions that much for him um, because he's already getting, you know, more work uh, on game days from a, a lifting standpoint. Um, but certainly it's a, uh, that's, that's an area where we, we try to bridge 
the data that we collect and, and our readiness uh, monitoring information, our jump information, as well as, you know, just having conversations with people and, and talking to people and um, making sure that, you know, seeing how people are feeling and if we need to adjust and if there's something we need to do differently or more or less and, and being open to that, that conversation. Oh, and with kind of the readiness check, do you guys perform any sort of kind of jump work to kind of test where they're at that day, just seeing if they're in a zone to kind of train well or if they're just hyper fatigued? Are you using kind of an RPE for them to kind of just give you guys feedback to start the day off? So we do a couple things. The first off is we do a, a wellness questionnaire every morning. So the athletes uh, have an app on their phone um, that feeds into our our athlete management system called coach me plus. So the guys just fill out in the morning before they come to the rink, um, a list of, uh, you know, five or six questions, how they're feeling, et cetera, et cetera. So I see right off the bat kind of where guys are at. And if there's any red flags and anybody I need to bump into, uh, to double check on, um, that's kind of layer number one. Um, we used to do our, we still perform our drop jumps to get RSI. Like I talked about earlier, we used to use that information, to auto-regulate their lift. So if they weren't jumping very well, then we would we would take a set or two off. If they were jumping really, really well, uh, relative to their norm, then we'd hit the gas pedal a little bit. Um, now that we have more access to uh, velocity-based training, we don't use that data the same way. Uh, now we, we, let, um, we let velocity, we let speed in training dictate what they're going to do. So the athletes train via a, a speed zone instead of a percentage of one RM. And if they, you know, basically if we're doing, let's say a, a trap bar jump squat, uh, if they need to hit between a 1.2 and a 1.3 meters per second, um, when they're jumping, if they're faster than that, because they're buzzing today and they have gas, then they know they need to add a little bit of weight. And if they're lower than that speed, they're a little slow and sluggish today, they're a little fatigued then they know they need to take off weight. So the velocity tools allow us mm -hmm. to basically individualize that prescription on a daily basis, just based on where that person is when they walk in the door. Yeah. Uh, I think that's such a, it's such a huge tool to be able to do that, uh, to really, if, you're, if your intent for your team is to be fast and to be powerful, then you've got to have some way that you're testing it to make sure that's what you're truly doing. Because quickly you can turn guys from being fast, explosive athletes in a grinders when you're not uh, tracking it. No question. And, and, you know, we talked about earlier, but you can use the jump mats exactly the same way. I mean, that, that gives you the exact same uh, type of information to be able to make, you know, on the fly adjustments really well. Um, but it is, it's all about, you know, what is, what is, I think in the world of strength and conditioning in general, I think we get really locked into the strength part of that mm -hmm. because you know, tradition and because it's easy to, to measure it and, and, and all of these things. But I think what I've been finding uh, over time is that um, strength is no, without question, is the foundation, is the, the cornerstone, is, is the most important thing to develop early on. But that perhaps the levels of strength that we thought were necessary for some of our athletes are not as high as they were. Mm -hmm. And we can focus more of our attention on the speed power side of things. Mm -hmm earlier on in that process um, instead of, of, you know, just kind of grinding away for longer to develop, you know, low speed, high load strength. Yeah. And I love that you just brought that up because one of the things I wanted to ask you is how, how high have you seen these guys' strength numbers go up as you switch to a primary rear foot elevated split squat? I think I've seen some of like the hand supported versions getting into the 400 pound range. What have you guys seen as far as like that top end of strength with that? Yeah, I mean, since we've we've gone to that variation now over the last couple of years, um, in the off season when we're in, when we are in our max strength cycle, um, this past off season we had um, probably six guys over five hundred pounds. Wow! And all of our sophomores and up were over four hundred pounds um, on one leg. So so the the you know, when I talk about transitioning to power and thinking more of it than, than strength, don't get me wrong. Like we lift really heavy. We get really, really strong, um, in maybe unconventional ways, but 500 pounds is 500 pounds. I don't care how you're, you're picking that up. We're doing it on one leg. Our guys get really strong. Um, 
it, it, again, that's it's the foundation to all the other pieces. Um, but yeah, we've since we've gone to that variation, um, it's been an absolute game changer. I, I I can't imagine sort of not using that tool for that job uh, the way we are at this point. And I know that you at one point when I was kind of following along was the kind of from the rack single leg deadlift variation, and that was getting pretty high too for just that explosive kind of concentric only portion of it. What were some of the numbers you're getting on that? Just, I, I love, I want to talk about it briefly just so people can say like when they're listening to this, oh, this is just speed, this is just speed. Like there's some substantial strength behind some of these exercises. Yeah. So the, you know, the, the single leg, single leg rack pull, mm -hmm. you know, really a, like a barbell SLDL off of the rack. Um, when we, we haven't used that recently as a kind of heavy strength, a lift, but when we were, I mean, it, it was not uncommon for our guys to, to, you know, bang out sets of five at, at 225 at 245. Mm -hmm. So again, that kind of single leg, um, deadlift, uh, position or, or movement, um, that if, if people that, that don't train that way or, or haven't been exposed to that think, oh, that's, you know, a 15 pound kettlebell type exercise. Well, it's, that's a 250 exercise. Yeah. You know, and that the again the, the split squat, the rear foot elevated split squat, like, oh, that's a thirty pound dumbbell in each hand. No, that's that's five hundred and fifty pounds on your shoulders. Like yeah. you can develop really high levels of strength and force in these unilateral uh positions. You just have to be kind of open to to doing things a little bit different than maybe tradition has always told us. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've heard Mike talk about so many times is just the concept of that bilateral deficit where just that load that's on the back might be 500 pounds. But if you were trying to really push this athlete to kind of replicate that in a, a bilateral back squat, you, you may not be at a thousand pounds as like the math would say, but you're definitely going to be in that 650 to 750 range. And you're, that's a substantial load on the back when you're talking about trying to get these guys healthy, just that ability to kind of reduce that overall load on the spine, but then really challenge those legs individually. No question. I mean, that's that's the original reason why we transitioned to the rear foot elevated split squat was that concept of of reducing total load on the back, but maintaining higher loads individually on each, on each leg. But as we continue to, you know, push that envelope and see guys just continue to get stronger and stronger and stronger and stay healthy and stay healthy and stay healthy, um, that's when we had to switch to, you know, the experiment. And, and now the staple of using the, the safety squat bar with the hand supported um, uh, variation in the rack. Um, and the interesting thing there is even at those really high loads that are still, you know, whether you're on one leg or two legs at this point, that's still 500 pounds on your spine. Mm -hmm. But what I see as being the difference is that it's a, the torso stays very, very vertical in the RFE versus um, a comparable load in a back squat where it's not vertical. So you don't have, excuse me, you don't have the sheer force that you have in a bilateral squat, mm -hmm. um, at, at those loads. And so again, you know, we're now three or four years into really pushing the envelope there with, with, I mean, no problems whatsoever from a, from an, an injury perspective. And do you guys, have you kind of flipped the script as far as if this is my major movement, do you use any sort of bilateral lower body pushing exercises just for kind of that uh, mobility purpose, kind of how people used to use kind of a rear foot elevated as an auxiliary to their back squat. Do you then goblet squat or trap bar deadlift at all just for a little bit more of just that mobility portion or are you strictly on that single leg? Yeah, no, absolutely. We will. Uh, we will still bilateral, you know, lift in, you know, exactly like you said, is sort of our, our ex auxiliary, our C-series type mm -hmm. stuff. Um, more so in the, in the off season when we have sort of more availability of, of things we can put in. But, um, I'm a big fan of, of, uh, like double kettlebell front squat position, uh, for guys, um, from a, a, a core strength, uh, stability standpoint from a, a hip mobility standpoint is something that we use a lot. Um, things like that. We've, we've used the trap bar in that sense, uh, at different times. And, and so definitely there's, um, it's not as if we don't, do anything on two legs. It's just that when we talk about developing really high levels of strength and force, I have found that 
unilateral exercises actually are, are more beneficial to fill that buckets. No, I love it. That's awesome, coach. I think that's su extremely helpful for uh, myself and probably a lot of coaches listening is we fall so much where people just jump on one side of the fence on this and without truly understanding what that program really looks like. Um, and to say that, like, yeah, I'm pushing the envelope on what single leg training can go as far as a strength point, but I still value a bilateral loaded pushing action. I think that's important to just kind of say. Yeah, it's still, absolutely, it's still a fundamental movement. It's something, I mean, we literally squat in our warm up every day, not under load, but the, the ability to squat appropriately um, is, is fundamental. Uh, it's just that we, again, we found that loading that from a really high load perspective is not the tool that, that best develops that quality through the lens of reducing the incidence of injury. And, and really at this point, from a performance standpoint too, there's nobody, you know, we don't have anybody that could bilaterally squat, uh, you know, 550 pounds, maybe, maybe one guy that was a really pr proficient back squatter before he came here and a really strong kid, but it's like, we're doing it on one leg. Why would we, why would we try to again, go back to that bilateral heavy, heavy load when we're getting way more out of it, the way we're doing yeah. it. Fantastic. Now you're, you're pushing the limits here of like what, what the intent of your training can look like. What do you feel is kind of the next step that you want to get better at with your program and as the, the community of strength coaches and kind of physical preparation coaches as a whole, what do you think is that next step we want to take? That's a really good question. Um, I, I think I want to keep going down this sort of, this, this rabbit hole of, of, higher velocity speed power based versus lower velocity strength based stuff and and really how 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 little can i do on one end of the spectrum mm -hmm. and still improve the the performance on the other end you know what i mean 100%. um we've certainly if i look at you know my career i've i've definitely moved as i said more from a strength perspective towards more of a speed power perspective and again like hockey is absolutely a speed power sport, you know, um, and, and it's getting even faster. So clearly the, that's the direction we need to go. It's just from a, a training standpoint, what's the, what's the appropriate, um, you know, ratio, I guess you could say like, what, what, what's the mix of ingredients, how much of the strength work and at what level is, you know, strong enough kind of idea. I, I want to keep kind of going down that road because I think that it's, a lot more on the speed side than uh you know folks like me have have thought or have believed yeah. uh in the past i i love that you said that that's one of the things i've been talking a lot with our, our younger staff and the staff as a whole and it's been in the last probably year um really reaching out to a lot of good track coaches um and track speed and strength coaches and hearing them talk about the lack of necessity to get strong in the weight room, how it applies to their athletes' performance, and kind of taking that mindset and just saying, well, how strong do they need to be to re reduce their injury load? But then is there a benefit beyond that? And I think that idea is, is huge, and the track coaches seem a little far ahead of us because their sport truly just tests, can my athlete perform it? sprints at a high level, jumps at a high level, throws at a high level? For sure. And, and again, I think, you know, especially with, with hockey, with collision sports, like strength is always going to be really important. You, you guys are running into each other at, at 25 miles an hour. Strength is, is always going to be a, a cornerstone, but there's a, I think there's a line that how, like I said, how strong is strong enough. And, and, um, maybe, maybe we need to get to a certain level of strength and that does sacrifice some on the speed side, but it's necessary. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, from, from a collision standpoint, from all that stuff. But, but again, I, that's where I'm kind of, that's where I'm heading is trying to figure out, ask some of those questions and, and, and find some answers to that as, as we go. Awesome. But it's a never, never ending process. That, that's the fun part about this is right when you think you got it figured out, you find something that you know nothing about and you're starting all over. Exactly. Uh, so coach, we're reaching kind of the end of our talk today. One thing I want to ask a coach like yourself is for young strength and conditioning coaches, young sport coaches who are just kind of starting out, 
what's like your biggest piece of advice you'd give them as they enter this profession? I think first and foremost is, is gain as much hands-on experience as you can. Um, I think what we see, what we're seeing in the field right now are a lot of young coaches coming out that, um, are really, really, really smart, really, really book smart. Um, but they're not in the trenches and they, you know, the, the I don't want to say the, the keyboard warrior, cause I don't think everybody's like trying to be negative that way. But I think there's a lot of people that spend more time, you know, on the academic side, which is necessary, but they spend more time there than they do actually training people. And at the end of the day, coaching is about teaching and it's about relationships and it's a people business. And if you're not good at that, you're not going to be a very good coach. So I think, I think that's one thing that I've seen with, with, uh, you know, the interns that I have and stuff over time, uh, and the young coaches coming out is, is, uh, they're way smarter than me. <laughs> But they're, they're not very good, uh, initially at the, you know, the, literally the hands on portion. And that's what we do. It's a hands on yeah, business. They start, they almost come out as just philosophy coaches about this is what I would do yeah. if I was coaching somebody. This is what you should do. And then you ask, like, what have you done? And you're like, oh, I haven't really actually trained anybody, but this is what I would do with somebody. Exactly. And it's, it's just, it's a, it's, it's an experience thing. You got to get your hands dirty. So it's, that was the best advice early on that I got was to spend as much time anywhere, everywhere, uh, coaching, find opportunities to coach, find opportunities to, to, uh, you know, to get your hands dirty. Cause that's, that's really how you do it. That's what you got to get good at. I love it. And I wanted, I usually ask kind of any, any books or anything that anybody's reading right now that they really like, but I'd love for you to just kind of talk about your book intent and just kind of speak to like who, who as a coach can this benefit? Uh, what was the, the thought behind it? Yeah, so um, my book, uh, Intent, A Practical Approach uh, to Applied Sports Science for Athletic Development, is about um, applying, building and applying uh, a holistic sports science system within the confines of strength and conditioning. So I think, um, I think sports science is, is obviously uh, kind of a, a buzzword, um, but a lot of people don't necessarily understand uh, who's doing it or what it really means or, or how to do it. And so, uh, me and, and my co-author, uh, Justin Rothingshofer wanted to write a book about how we have designed, uh, a holistic system within our strength and conditioning system to use tools and technologies to drive that process. It's not just about collecting information, but using the information like I've talked about, uh, today to actually make adjustments, make changes, uh, affect the athlete in a positive way. Um, and what we tried to do was, was, uh, basically write an outline, uh, or, or sort of a blueprint, um, for coaches at any budget level. So we have sort of options for each category at, you know, basically the, the pen and paper level or the, you know, very low budget, you know, kind of high school level all the way up to, you know, elite performance professional teams, no, you know, no budgetary constraints. So within all these different categories that we've talked about, jump profiling and um, load monitoring and all these things, how can you uh, use what you've got um, or what's readily available to really sort of build a, build a system for yourself that helps your athletes improve beyond, again, just the, the traditional confines of strength and conditioning, but really start to understand and apply information behind what they're doing. Yeah, I love it. Uh, it sounds awesome. I can't wait to get my copy of it and go through this because talking with you and actually going through a little bit of the book, but um, two things I thought are really cool from the introduction is you're talking about just what, as, what your work as a strength coach enables you to do. And two things that kind of stood up to me were create trust and buy-in with coaches and players and provide accountability between coaches and players. And I think that that's two things that we sometimes miss as far as what we need to work on when we get too focused on the actual X's and O's, the programming side, is there is a huge part beyond that that we are required to do to be successful as a strength coach. No question. Uh, you know, again, everything comes down to trust and communication and, and relationship building. Uh, for me, using sports science has been really beneficial to answer 
the why behind what we're doing. I, I never want to get into a situation where we're just doing work for work's sake and being able to back up what we're doing uh, or change what we're doing if we find out it's not working um, is hugely valuable. It, it creates trust and buy-in uh, for all parties, for the athletes, for the coaches, et cetera, um, that what we're doing is, is uh, you know, we're doing things with intent, right? It's about a purpose. It's about moving towards a specific goal, not just doing stuff. I love it, Coach. So people that are looking to, to learn more about what you're doing, you do a great job on social media. What do you recommend is the best way to kind of follow you or get in touch with you if you have any questions? Yeah, um, I'm like you said, I'm on social media a lot, um, on Twitter and Instagram, uh, at dmcconnell29. Um, so that's probably the, the easiest way is, uh, you know, kind of through Twitter. I'm on there a lot. Uh, you can shoot me an email too. Same, same address, uh, dmcconnell29 at gmail. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm always happy to talk shop. Awesome. Well, coach, thank you so much for taking the hour today to kind of talk with me. Um, I loved it and I hope that people are listening can get a lot of the information out of this one to apply right away to their programs. 